Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. Long before the Christopher Columbus narrative began, and before the American colonies were established and expanded into what is now known as the United States, there were indigenous nations which occupied and populated the land on which we presently live. Much of the histories of these nations have been unrecorded, suppressed, and minimized to the detriment of the indigenous people and to the dismay of many who now seek to learn and know more about these histories. We do know that in North Carolina, the most powerful and enduring of these nations were the Tuscaroas and Cherokees. The historic contributions of these nations are not a part of the history which is taught in our school. But we do know that the Tuscarora people were the victims of a military massacre here in North Carolina, as were the Cherokees, who were forcefully relocated and dispersed to various quarters of North Carolina and as far away as Oklahoma during the Trail of Tears. Today, the Lumbees are the largest indigenous population in North Carolina which has now the largest population of indigenous people east of the Mississippi River. October 10th is now recognized as Indigenous People Day and is supposed to serve as a recognition and commemoration of this suppressed history. Although these histories have been suppressed, there are a number of robust efforts underway to preserve research, educate, and celebrate the presence and accomplishments of these populations. As a part of this history, there are some indigenous nations which are governmentally recognized by the federal government and others that are only recognized in North Carolina. In North Carolina, the recognized nations are the Koharis, the Halawa Saponi, the Lumbees, the Maharan, the Metrolinas, and the Okanichi Band of Saponi Nation. Yet, there are others that are not federally or state recognized, but deserve that recognition and deserve to be celebrated as indigenous nations. Tonight, we're gonna to talk about the more than 575 indigenous nations and hopefully we will elevate our knowledge of these suppressed histories and inspire you who want to know more. Joining us for this discussion is attorney Alinda Locklear, a member of the Lumbee Nation, who was the first indigenous female attorney to argue a case before the US Supreme Court and is acknowledged as the foremost authority on federal law dealing with indigenous population. 
From 1987 until 2010, she represented the Lumbees in its, uh, in its quest to obtain federal recognition. And I must also add that she is a proud Julian Pierce awardee. And we mentioned Julian Pierce because he is an alum uh, of the uh, North Carolina Central University uh, School of Law and made significant contribution to the uh, welfare and uplifting of uh, indigenous communities in uh, Robeson County. So uh, attorney uh, Locklear, thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you for having me. I've looked forward to this. Okay, well, you know, let's, let's get started uh, with this uh, discussion uh, for our audience. Uh, will you explain the origin and importance of the celebration of the uh, Indigenous People Day? Well, if I may just take a point of personal privilege and start by saying your alum, Ju Julian Pierce, was also a very dear friend of mine. He and I were in law school at the same time, graduated the same year, studied together to take the bar exam. Wow. Uh, so, and, and we have done some work in representing the Lumbee tribe together in his early career as well. So uh, that's, I'm particularly proud of that association. Well, and as for Indigenous Day, as you know, we've long had a Columbus Day celebration. Um, the Columbus Day celebration is what the majority society recognizes as a way to honor Christopher Columbus, the so-called founder of this continent. Um, that all relates to the doctrine of discovery, which is the original legal fiction upon which all of the European governments base their claim to title and ability to control the land of all of the native communities that they so-called discovered at the time of their arrival. Um, needless to say, that, that version of history has not always gone down well with indigenous communities. It overlooks the fact, as you rightly pointed out, that these indigenous communities have been here for a very long time predate the so-called discovery by Christopher Columbus and really resented the notion that history on this continent began with that voyage of Christopher Columbus to the United States. As a result of significant pressure largely by native communities, a lot of states and the federal government have begun to recognize Indigenous Day as a way of acknowledging that history in this continent did not begin with Christopher Columbus. Uh, it long predates that, and there is a rich and diverse history in the indigenous community that people need to pay attention to, need to learn and teach their children if they're gonna truly appreciate the history of this continent. Why, why, why is this celebration uh, important to, to you, first of all, as, as a uh, member of the uh, Lumbee nation to other indigenous nations and to the community at large that uh, they should know about and appreciate uh, the histories that's, that's been suppressed uh, in this regard? That's a very good question. It's important in particular to for two respects. First of all, there's a cultural aspect to this question because it means that 
our culture is merits and is worthy of recognition and acknowledgement. Um, secondly, it's important to us lawyers because it means that it recognizes the fact that the history that is built within the recognition of this holiday and the celebration of it is also the origin of many of the legal rights that native communities continue to claim and assert and that federal courts continue to acknowledge. If you begin with that history, you understand, for example, why the Northwest tribes have treaty fishing rights that the federal courts will still acknowledge. While tribes in the East Coast, although unknown to many of their governments at the time, continue to have rights to lands. Uh, why tribes in the Midwest continue to have traditional ricing rights under treaty. It's that history that gives rise to those rights. And because of that, it's important for the dominant society to understand and appreciate that history so that they can continue to respect those legal rights as well as the cultural history that's behind it. Well, notwithstanding the the nation-to-nation conflict, as, as I describe it, and as I, co- I consider it, can you kind of talk about some of the uh, the discriminatory conduct and actions that have been directed toward uh, members of the uh, indigenous populations over the years uh, within the country, and particularly uh, here in uh, in North Carolina? Oh my goodness, that's a very large topic. Um, <laughs> The, the Supreme Court itself has acknowledged that in the, in the late 19th century, the Supreme Court uh, announced a decision in a criminal law case called the Kansas Indians in which the Supreme Court explicitly acknowledged that the states within which native communities reside are often the most hostile to the continued existence of the natives and their continued assertion of their rights. Because of that hostility and longstanding hostility, as early as the adoption of the Constitution in 1789, the founders of our Constitution, the authors, acknowledged that relations between Native communities and the United States truly more properly belongs in the realm of the federal government and not in the realm of the state government. As a result, they included the Indian Commerce Clause in the traditional Commerce Clause, which vests all authority, referred to by lawyers in the Supreme Court as plenary authority, to manage relations with Indian tribes. So since 1789, and actually beginning as a practical matter before that, because the first treaty with the United States and an Indian tribe was 1777, The federal government has asserted and exercised a supervisory authority over relations with Indian tribes because of the known hostility between the local governments and the tribes that resided nearby those local governments. However, that suggests that the United States, which has become known as the trustee for Indian tribes, was always protective to the point of providing only benefits and not detriment to those native communities. However, that's not the case either. It's a complicated history there as well. The policy of the United States has vacillated most 
Indian authors will say, every 50 years or so between a protective policy and between an assimilation policy, which was intended to destroy, undermine and replace Indian culture and Indian tribes with the dominant society. So it's a very complex issue. Um, you have to look at relations with the individual states and relations with the United States as well. But I will say this about the states, and this is an important point with regard to the original 13 colonies and North Carolina, all of the original 13 colonies had conducted relationships with the tribes located in their states <clears throat> before the adoption of the constitution in 1789. Because of that tradition, many of those states, including North Carolina, have recognized and maintained a government to government relationship with tribes in their borders, much as the United States has done since the adoption of the constitution in 1789. So in particular on the Eastern seaboard, you have this very complex set of relations. There are some states, for example, New York, uh, state of South Carolina, state of Connecticut, that as early as the early 1700s conducted treaty relations with the tribes located in their states. Those relations continued even after the adoption of the constitution so that in states like North Carolina, New York, Connecticut, South Carolina, you have a complex set of relationships where there is a government to government federal relationship between the tribes that are federally recognized located within those states and a government to government relationship between the states and the tribes that are located within those states. So it's a very complicated relationship, sometimes more protective and respectful of native governments, self-governing authority and other times not so much. Um, but it is unique to the original 13 colonies that this more complicated relationship, including government to government relations with the states, continue to exist even to this day. Let me say in the state of North Carolina in particular, um, that there were not treaty relations with the currently state recognized tribes in North Carolina. However, there is a very long history be beginning in the mid 19th century with those tribes. As early as 1885, for example, the state of North Carolina recognized the Lumbee tribe of North Carolina as a separate self-governing native community, exactly the same way that the federal government recognizes the 575 federally recognized tribes. And since then, the relationship between the Lumbee tribe and the state of North Carolina has continued to develop it has become, it is as rich and complicated and complex as the relationship between federally recognized tribes and the United States. Attorney Lockler, thank you so much for that. And as you were sharing the <clears throat> complexity of the relationship, both at the federal level and the state level with indigenous nations, I was reflecting on um, Irv's intro and his emphasis that we do not in this country do a good job of talking about this history, nor do we do a good job even in law school um, talking about these complex 
governmental relationships. Can you share your thoughts on um, the importance of making sure that, you know, at the uh, primary school level, the secondary school level, but also at the law school level, that we do a better job of talking about the history and the relationship when it comes to indigenous nations? Certainly. Um, it, it, it is fundamental to the cohabitation of the various cultures that exist in this country. We are a diverse society and the original diversity begins with native communities. Along with that original existence comes a whole set of federal laws, federal treaties and federal common law rights that courts have developed over the last 200 years that recognize the uniqueness of those communities. And without there being a fundamental level of knowledge about that unique history, then the dominant society does not understand and cannot appreciate the existence of those rights and why those rights need to be respected. There have, as a result, been conflicts that have been very unfortunate in different regions of the country over different rights that native communities continue to hold and exercise simply because the dominant society is unaware of them, doesn't understand them, and therefore doesn't respect them. We could avoid that conflict and learn to work together over all of our shared territory and shared resources if we are at least respectful and knowledgeable about each other's history. So that's where it begins. Now, this is a uh, very uh, uh, rich history once you get into it. And uh, you're, you're looking at real distinctions between the relationships of the United States and the various states, between those, those nations that are situated in the West, the Midwest, and here on the, uh, on the East Coast. And uh, people need to understand it because they benefit from some of those differences. And we're going to talk about that uh, a little more, but we're going to take our break right now. This is uh, the Legal Eagle Review, and we're, we're talking with attorney Linda Lockley, who is a uh, member of the uh, Lumbee Nation, and she is the foremost authority on the legal rights of uh, indigenous populations here in this country. Uh, we're going to continue our discussion with her, but right now we're going to take our break and we'll be right back. North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCCU Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center, made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. 
The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to one, facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and two, increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us uh, this evening as we uh, continue our discussion about uh, Indigenous uh, People Day or Indigenous Nation uh, Day. Since we are celebrating uh, populations that are all over the, uh, the, the USA uh, and uh, they are nation rather than just people. Uh, that we uh, that we are addressing, and we have uh, Attorney Alinda Lockley, who is a renowned member of uh, one of the uh, foremost uh, uh, Indigenous nation here, the Lumbees. And uh, <clears throat> let me just get us back to an understanding of the authority and power of the various indigenous nations around uh, the country. Because a lot of people are confused with the notion that they are independent to some extent, but dependent uh, in, uh, in, in other uh, instances that there are special treaty uh, obligations and treaty rights that uh, exist between the uh, United States and these and several of these, or many of these uh, indigenous uh, nations, can you kind of help us to understand what those uh, distinct differences and relationships are? Absolutely, and I'm glad you asked that question because that's an important departure point that folks need to understand when they think about these issues. Um, there are two sources basically for the unique status of Indian governments in the United States. And that's the important word, governments, in the sense that native communities are self-governing communities. The first source comes from very early Supreme Court decisions written by the famous Chief Justice John Marshall, who has given us a lot of basic concepts that underpin federal common law. In the early 1820s in a trilogy of decisions, Justice Marshall described Indian tribes as independent governments, not subject to the control of any states, subject only to the control of the United States, but within their territories, completely self-governing. He acknowledged in these, this series of decisions that Indian governments ruled a discrete territory, governed their own people with their own laws, language, and culture at the time of so-called discovery. And that it was commonly understood among the so-called discovering European nations that even at the time of white contact, those native communities retained those powers of self-government unless 
the so-called discovering European power, took some affirmative action to strip that native government of that power. The United States never did that. So as a result of those three decisions and the fundamental laws and treaty relations among the Europeans, the United States has always recognized native governments as self-governing and with complete control over their people and their territory. Now, over time, the Supreme Court has restricted that authority so that principally in relations between native governments and non-Indians as they come on to native territory, the United States has taken control of that relationship itself. For example, native governments as a result of Supreme Court decisions do not have criminal authority over non-natives within their community. That has happened in a series of statutes as well as Supreme Court decisions. So while the Supreme Court decisions have recognized the natives as governments, there have over time been restrictions recognized by the Supreme Court. Now the second body of fundamental law that recognizes native communities as self-governing is a series of a, about 300 treaties that the United States entered into between those communities um, over time. And in the constitution of the United States, it makes very plain that those native treaties as well as international treaties have the status of the supreme law of the land. Now this is an important concept because it means that whatever rights are acknowledged in those treaties override whatever state laws may be passed to, in an attempt to try to regulate or extinguish those rights. One other comment's important about these treaties. The Supreme Court has interpreted these treaties to be as favorable and as broad as possible for the rights of native people. The fundamental rule of construction for these roughly 300 treaties is that the treaties should be viewed as taking away rights that were inherently held by the native government. As a result, unless the treaty explicitly takes away a particular right, then the native government retains that authority. For example, the authority to regulate their own members hunting and fishing within their territory has been interpreted time and time again as a right that the native governments have retained by the Supreme Court unless a particular treaty has extinguished that right. Another example is the continued existence of native territories as distinct and not subject to the government of states. Often the term of art that is used as Indian country. If Indian country continues to exist under those treaties, then it means that the state's authority continues to be very limited with respect to those native communities. And once again, the Supreme Court has applied the rule that unless a particular treaty explicitly extinguishes Indian country, Indian country continues to exist, which means that the states have no authority 
unless given that authority by the United States Congress to regulate native activity within that territory. So those are the fundamental principles that all of the rights, both self-governing and rights to control their own resources and rights to control their own, even domestic relations among their people are all rested upon that fundamental right found in those two uh, original bases. And Attorney Lockler, can you then, um, and based on that, can you tie into the importance then of federal recognition? So we know that there have been efforts um, on the part of the Lumbee Nation to receive federal recognition. Can you talk about the importance of that as it relates to self-governing and control over the communities and the resources as you just described? Oh, so happy you asked that question. <laughs> this is one of my favorite topics. Um, I, I think it's important to start this discussion with acknowledging that while the federal government has had a lot of policies and laws with regard to its relations with native governments, there has never been a federal statute that says the United States shall recognize all Indian tribes that exist as such. There is no statute that says that. There is no policy that says that. Instead, recognition has occurred over time as a subsidiary co consequence of some other action by the federal government. For example, in those 300 treaties that the United States has negotiated with the tribe, a consequence of those treaties is that the United States, as a result, recognizes that particular Native community. And because that Native community is then officially recognized by the United States, all the special status that I described before as Native governments adheres to that particular tribe. However, there were a lot of communities that particularly those located on the Eastern seaboard that experienced white contact earlier than, than the communities out West who never had reason to engage with the United States. Many of the native communities in the original 13 colonies lost all of their land, had been pacified and were basically just living their lives in as discreet a way as possible to protect and preserve their culture so that the United States could and frequently did simply ignore them. And a consequence of that disregard is that those communities lack the status of federal recognition. In other words, simply stated, the, the federal government never said to a particular community, we consider this one recognized and we consider this one unrecognized. It's just happenstance. Whether the federal government ever felt need to deal with the community, if it did, the community was recognized. If it did not, the community was non-federally recognized. But those communities, and some people count as many of, as a hundred of them, continue to exist. And that is the hallmark of tribal existence. It's an act of political and cultural will to survive. And when that community is so committed to its uniqueness and its distinction from the dominant society, that is what federal courts 
have acknowledged is the hallmark of tribal existence and the one characteristic that is necessary for an argument that that community should enjoy the same rights of self-government as recognized tribes. Finally, though, in 1978, the Department of the Interior, not the Congress, said as a matter of their policy, we really think we need to have a way of distinguishing non-federally recognized from federally recognized tribes. And so they established a regulatory process that allows tribes to submit petitions to achieve federal recognition if they have never had that relationship with the federal government in the past. So we do have now this regulatory process, but it's not as a result of any act of Congress or any particular direction by Congress that this is the hallmark you should look for and this is irrelevant. So as a result of those consequences of history, we have this whole body of non-federally recognized tribes that are trying to achieve the same status as the federally recognized tribes so that they have can enjoy and have the same protection that federal law allows them. Well, not, not to put you on the spot uh, and, and act like uh, the, uh, the Supreme Court. Feel free. Uh, but, you know, talk, talking about uh, some of the conflicts that uh, have occurred over the years. Can you give us a kind of a brief summary of uh, the Cobra versus Salazar uh, situation and what uh, what that conflict was about and how it ended up uh, uh, being settled uh, during the uh, Obama administration? Yes. Um... <clears throat> Even though the federal government is supposedly the trustee of federally recognized tribes, which brings with it the obligation to protect not only the existence of the community, but their resources, the federal government has does not have a good history of having actively done so. Um, to the contrary, the federal government has more often ignored or violated treaty rights than it has protected or preserved them. As a result of that, federally recognized tribes have claims against the federal government for what are generally referred to as breach of trust responsibility. There is a large variety of those claims. They can be money damage claims. They can be claims for failure to protect resources. They can be claims for failure to protect the tribes from the states where they reside. But there are very complicated legal defenses that over time have historically prevented tribes from being able to sue upon those claims in federal court. Eventually in 1946, Congress enacted a statute that created the Indian Claims Commission and authorized Indian tribes to assert certain claims against the United States for breach of trust and to receive an award of money damages if the tribe could prove that the United States trust obligation had been violated. Many claims like that were filed. Some were actually prevailed. Some tribes actually prevailed and some were actually paid. But before the Indian Claims Commission shut down, there were many claims that simply never had the opportunity to be acted upon. 
So the Congress was aware that there were all these outstanding claims against the United States. And so they made very modest provisions in the law to allow the continued assertion of these claims. Eventually though, the Congress decided that the appropriate thing to do rather than force tribes to forever file lawsuits and litigate these claims in one forum or another was to appropriate a, a, an appropriate settlement for these claims. And that's what the Cobell litigation was all about. It resulted in, it, was, it began as a massive claim for breach of trust against the United States for its failure to either honor treaties or otherwise protect tribes. And it ended in a settlement that Congress enacted to acknowledge that the United States had not lived up to its responsibilities and to compensate tribes for its failure to do so. All right, you are listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And joining us this hour is attorney Arlinda Locklear. She is a distinguished member of the Lumbee Nation, and she was the first indigenous female attorney to argue a case before the U.S. Supreme Court. We're talking this hour about the issues surrounding the indigenous nations and recognizing Indigenous Peoples Day, which is October the 10th this year. We're gonna take a quick break. We hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I'm currently a 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any law degree program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking this hour with Arlinda Locklear, who is an attorney, a distinguished attorney and a member of the Lumbee Nation. She was also the first indigenous female attorney to argue before the United States Supreme Court. Um, Attorney Locklear, you were talking about the Cobol v. Salazar case in which there, that, which focused on the settlement of claims based on the federal government's breach of trust for failure to do what it was um, uh, required to do under federal treaties. When, as we're talking about the failure of the federal government and also when we're thinking about the failure of state governments and local governments, 
Um, this, I think, leads us into current issues that exist within the indigenous communities. So when we think about um, uh, opportunities, economic opportunities, when we think about education, when we think about health issues, can you talk about some of the, the shortcomings that exist currently in terms of what the government should be doing to better support our indigenous communities? Well, there is one area that I am particularly concerned about and because of we're all facing issues of climate change and very limited resources that we must all share. <clears throat> and that is water rights in the 17 Western states. The Supreme mm -hmm. Court has ruled that all of the reservations that were set up in these arid states by the United States by treaty were to be construed to reserve sufficient water from the limited, that limited resource in these 17 arid states to make the reservations livable based on the culture and history of every tribe. Things have been competitive ever since the Supreme Court adopted that rule. Yeah. Um, and they have become almost desperate of late. Of late, for example, the Colorado River um, that feeds California, Colorado, several states, as well as ends in uh, the country of Mexico has, it has become so overused and overdrawn that no, none of the water is available to supply all of the rights that the state and federal law recognizes. So there will be intense competition going forward between natives ability to use their lands and to acquire sufficient water for that purpose and the non-Indian farmers who use that water for irrigation and the municipalities who have traditionally relied upon Indian water and not to put too fine a point on it, have stolen that water over time <laughs> for their own development. Uh, the federal government plays an important role in mediating among all of those water users in the 17 Western states largely because the federal government under the federal reclamation laws has been responsible for developing the elaborate system of dams and canals by which all of the users access that water. But up to this point, the federal government has been, shall we say less active as a trustee and more active as an arbiter among all water users and I think we're all concerned in Indian country that the federal government needs to step up and protect those rights, those water rights of native communities so that um, they can continue to exist as well. That's their economic base as well as it's the economic base for the non-Indian society. Um, we also have as an important point of culture, a, an important case pending in the Supreme Court right now which involves the constitutionality of a statute called the Indian Child Welfare Act. Mm -hmm. This is a statute that Congress enacted <clears throat> to memorialize the right of native governments to control the welfare of their own children and avoid the really rapacious uh, child welfare system of most states 
to take those children from native homes under their judgment that they were deemed not suitable and place those children in a non-native environment. After all, that how can a community continue to exist if it loses its children? Mm -hmm. the, there have been court decisions indicating that, that have indicated some constitutionality issues with regard to that statute. And that case has now reached the Supreme Court. And we're all in Indian country very nervous. It's gonna be argued in November. We're all very nervous about what the Supreme Court is gonna do in that case. Because again, that's fundamental to the continued existence of native communities. Well, let me, so, let me just ask you also, you know, in, in that regard about the uh, McGirt versus Oklahoma. Uh, yes. case and it's uh, its impact or projected yes. impact on the relationships between uh, some of these uh, indigenous nations and the surrounding uh, uh, European community. That's another interesting one. Um, that varies from state to state. Oklahoma territory was once called Indian territory because in a series of treaties, the United States, and that's, I should, should let your listeners know, Oklahoma is the state where the McGurk decision came from. Um, it was called Indian Territory because in a series of treaties, the United States promised Indian tribes, if you simply relocate to Indian Territory, we guarantee you, we will never establish a state there so that you will always be protected and always be self-governing. Well, that didn't last long. <laughs> um, uh, it, Oklahoma was established and over time, the state of Oklahoma began to argue that look, in the light of our unique history, we believe when the Congress took this step to create the state of Oklahoma, it meant that it abolished the Indian country so that the state of Oklahoma has authority over both criminal, civil jurisdiction, and regulatory authority over what had been substantial Indian reservations. And in the McGurk decision, uh, it was a close decision on the vote, but um, the Supreme Court did announce in that decision that when Congress enters into a treaty to create Indian territory or a reservation, Congress means what it says, and the states lack authority to regulate what goes on within that, that territory. There was a lot at the time of hand-wringing and protestation by the state of Oklahoma about the terrible consequences of that decision. But the state of Oklahoma has overlooked that for generations, there have been ways of dealing with these issues that it could take advantage of should it so choose. There have been other states where Native governments and states have worked out agreements between themselves, like governments do all over the world, where they make arrangements for the exercise of criminal jurisdiction. Deputization agreements, where tribal police would have the same authority to exercise and, and, and um, impose and stop for violations of criminal law from the state, and the state authority would have a comparable authority to do so against non -Ind against Indians. So there are ways for dealing with these issues. Only the only issue was whether the state was inclined to take advantage of them. And the state of Oklahoma preferred not to. It preferred to argue instead that <clears throat> we have 
us have that authority because we're better at it than the native governments. Our experience though has been to the contrary, that native governments to the extent we want equal criminal justice in particular, that will only be found if native governments are allowed to exercise their inherent right of criminal jurisdiction. We cannot rely on the states to do that in an equitable way. Which raises um, a, a issue that I wanted to, to get your thoughts on. Um, so we know that there are a number of missing indigenous women and that we are not doing a good enough job in making sure that um, the community is being protected. Can you share your thoughts on that? And also, can you um, share your thoughts on those of us who are allies? What more can we do? How can we better support indigenous communities? Well, that, that's a particularly heartbreaking example of the inequality of criminal justice in Indian country, because many of the perpetrators in the disappearance and death of Native women are non-Natives who go into the Indian territory and view it as a free zone for them to commit violations since federal, the federal <clears throat> government has determined that the Native governments lack authority to prosecute non-Natives. And unfortunately, the federal government and the states which have authority to prosecute non-natives simply fail to do so. It's not a priority. They don't devote the, devote the resources to it that they should. And as a consequence, we have basically this crime zone that the federal government and the states have created and, the, and native women become the victims of that. The federal government has finally begun to take that seriously. There is now a federal statute under which um, native governments, once they go through a certain process, can exercise limited criminal jurisdiction over crimes against their native women on their territory. So we're seeing some adaptation of that, um, but we still have an awfully long way to go. A lot of it, is based on the fact that there's just fundamental ignorance about what the facts are, how many cases there are, who, who fails to prosecute, and where the fault lies that these things are allowed to happen. I think the federal government has finally begun to pay attention to that now and to take seriously the responsibility of enhancing the criminal justice system in Indian country so that women are not subject to that kind of violence. And so do you have any thoughts as we have a few more minutes left um, on what we can do on all areas as it relates to our indigenous communities? Um, one of the things that um, both you and Irv mentioned was our esteemed alumnus, um, Julian Pierce. And we have a robust population of indigenous students here at NCCU School of Law and many of the indigenous attorneys throughout the state of North Carolina are graduates of this fine institution. Um, and we want to do all that we can do to support our communities. Um, any, any thoughts or suggestions for us? Absolutely. And th this relates back to the question we began with as to why this is important. 
it's important to educate people on these issues and, and sensitize them to the unique status of Indian tribes for this fundamental reason. As we discussed earlier, the United States Congress has what it calls plenary authority over native affairs. That means anything that the courts will uphold as a right of native people can be taken away by the United States Congress. And to the extent that our citizens can be educated about the unique history and rights of native people, they in turn will exercise influence over their members of Congress to say, we acknowledge that, we think it's important to us as an honorable nation that we continue to protect that. And we urge our members to vote in particular ways on issues that affect native communities. So it all will come full cycle and come back to the point of, you need to understand and appreciate those rights, be educated upon them so that you can make sure that your members of Congress do what's necessary to protect those rights as well. Which requires a lot of uh, understanding and education. Uh, for uh, for the populace, uh, and and then kind of wind it out. I'm, I'm going to take one of the, I guess one of my favorite histories uh, is that surrounding the uh, Pequot Nation mm. up in uh, Connecticut, and uh, the uh, uh, recognition by members of that uh, nation that they were a nation, and mm. then their decision to take control of that uh, land and then to create an economic base uh, for, the, uh, for their population. And, uh, and, and I think a lot of people don't really understand the uh, authority that exists where uh, these nations can do their, engage in their self-governance as well as provide a uh, livelihood for the uh, people that uh, populate uh, those uh, nations. So any thoughts on the, the Pequots and their success? Oh, absolutely. That's it. We, it thrills all of us in Indian country. Um, and it, it goes back to that original point that states lack authority to govern what goes on on Indian lands. And it, in the in 19... Uh, 87, the Supreme Court ruled in the Cabazon case, look, uh, you states, you want to regulate Indian gaming as an economic activity in Indian territory, but you don't have the authority to do so. And eventually Congress passed a statute very soon thereafter to help regulate that. But the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act is based upon that fundamental prim premise mm -hmm. that native governments have the right to manage what goes on in their territory. Yeah. So we're all here together, and the, what we need to do is figure out a way to make it work so that we govern in a way that is to the benefit of both our communities. Go Mo Mohegan Sun. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. Well, we are out of time, but we'd like to thank our guest, attorney Arlinda Locklear, a distinguished attorney and member of the Lumbee Nation. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you enjoyed the show and that you've learned something this hour. If you have any questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. 
Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.